the National Archives podcast series, Black British Politics and the Anti-Apartheid Struggle, presented by Dr Elizabeth Williams. This talk was recorded on the 9th of March 2017 with the National Archives, Q. I'm very pleased to introduce to you today Dr Elizabeth Williams. Dr Elizabeth Williams is a scholar and librarian, writer, researcher in the field of modern British history, the history of the black diaspora and race and culture, currently collaborating with a young Indian filmmaker in South Africa. So I'd like to introduce you to Dr Elizabeth Williams. Wow, thank you so much everyone for coming out. I hope that you find this afternoon uh, uh, goes well for you, uh, that I can add to probably knowledge you already know, and I'm sure that you're very familiar with these times anyway. But I hope to present to you another aspect, perhaps, of the anti-apartheid revision and historical accounting of what the anti-apartheid struggle was like in Britain at that time. So what I hope today is to just to present an overview of things that were occurring here in Britain. We're going to cover, obviously, the issues of race, culture, as well as international studies, just have a PowerPoint for you and then I'll do a little bit of reading and I hope that we can have a look at a film as long as it works, um, just to set things uh, in context. So Black Britain, Anti-Apartheid, Solidarity, 1970s to 1980s. I won't belabor the points because I think we all remember uh, what apartheid stood for uh, in its essential quality. It's an Afrikaans word meaning separateness. And this was a policy that was introduced in 1948 uh, by the National Party who had come to power on the platform that the problems as they saw it of South Africa at the time of there being this large black majority whose movement and they could not control, that it could be brought onto control under this policy of apartheid. So this is a definition of what apartheid was. Now, 1948 was actually quite a key date. Can anyone uh, tell me or remind us uh, what else happened in 1948? I'm not looking at anybody purposely here. I don't want you to accuse me of... But 1948, in terms of the political uh, situation internationally, 1948. Yes, it was the Olympics in London, I believe, wasn't it? Yes, yes, the London Olympics then. If I say human rights, does that... Yes, it was the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. And then closer to home in Britain, 1948 was also a key moment in time for uh, race relations in Britain here. Can anybody tell me? Yes, the wind rush. So we can see that actually there was quite a confluence of different things happening. 1948 was just after, as we know, the Second World War, which was principally fought by the Allies to push back this whole nation of race and race discrimination going to its very extreme to exterminate, you know, a people. And the world uh, at that time began to move a little bit further along. Of course, we know that decolonization would not come until the 1960s, but there started to be ferment, particularly in the colonies, and a pushback against this idea of um, colonialism. So 1948 actually is a very, very key moment in time. And what I want to just impress upon you is that 1948 was the time when South Africa, in a way, the rulers of South Africa decided that they would entrench this form of racial control amongst this population when the rest of the world would be turning away slowly but surely against that for a number of different reasons. So apartheid, if you can remember, was to touch all aspects of national life within South Africa, politically urban, uh, on the urban front where you lived, how you interacted with people, even in church, where you were buried, who you married, where you went to school, where you went to church. It was totally and utterly comprehensive. And for those of you after this talk that would like to actually go and drill down and look at some of the laws, there is such a blinding array of laws. Do you know a little bit of research on the internet. It's just quite amazing. No wonder it became so weighed down by the bureaucracy. No wonder, actually, it gave so many people a job to do to be able to not only uh, think up of these laws, but to try and implement them across the society. So that's what apartheid was all about at that time. Since the end, of course, of apartheid, as historians, we've started to look back and think about 
why apartheid came to an end, not only what was happening on the ground in South Africa, but internationally. And it came to my notice as a researcher that as we started to look at and reevaluate apartheid and its impact internationally, and particularly amongst groups in Britain, that there seemed to be gaps, there seemed to be missing voices uh, in that story, in that retelling at least, uh, from the British angle. So in particularly, I can remember attending a conference in Oxford at a time when I told the gathered crowd that I had been uh, to the 40th anniversary, shows how old I am, but the 40th anniversary of the anti-apartheid movement at the time, and that everybody was recounting the stories at you know, the South Africa House, which is the embassy in London. Everybody was recounting stories about what they did, etc. And as I looked around, I didn't see any black faces which I thought was very, very odd. I did see one black face, and that was, well, two, my friend who came with me, uh, Dr. Dudu Radaby, but also Professor Stuart Hall, who was on the panel, and he was talking about New Left Review, etc. And I thought this was so odd. Um, so I was telling this story at, at, at Oxford, and a member of the group there said to me, well, they weren't particularly surprised because uh, members of the black community here in Britain weren't particularly interested as far as they were concerned with what was happening in South Africa. It was a very, very far way away. And also the black community here tended to be Caribbean. And, you know, we know that there isn't apparently that much linkage between Caribbeans and black Africans, Caribbeans and South Africans. And you know when you hear these things, there's an instinct that goes off in your mind and you think, this doesn't sit quite comfortably. There's something that's not quite right. I didn't have the facts. I didn't know the people that I could talk to, the networks at that time, but it didn't sit quite right with me. So what I started to do was actually move among different communities, black and Asian communities, and basically ask them that question. Not what did your father do during the war, but where were you during the 1980s? What were the political issues that you were concerned about? Can you tell me more? I started to talk in particular to black intellectuals and academics. Uh, obviously, you start at the top, don't you? So I started with Professor Stuart Hall, and then I started to talk to black figures in public life um, as well. The few MPs that there were, councillors, activists, and can you believe it? Such a story emerged, I realised that actually there was a story to be told. And what I was going to do was to debunk the misconception that, you know, the black community felt little affinity with what was going on in terms of Southern African um, struggles in the 19, uh, well, definitely from the 1950s, 60s and 70s. So this research turned into the book. And what the book tries to do is to really provide another angle and to provide further transparency into the overall story that is uh, emerging. And we know, you know, obviously as historians, we look up the facts, we chronicle, we interpret, we evaluate, etc. But it's not a permanent Entity, it's always moving according to new sources, new stories, new perspectives, etc. That's what, you know, obviously keeps history as a discipline so dynamic and exciting. And this book, I think it's downstairs, isn't it, really shows that black activists in Britain were very engaged and very active through many different ways, which I will go on to explain during the uh, 70s and 80s in terms of their contribution alongside, you know, the general public to various anti-apartheid platforms. But also what it does is that it highlights the often fraught interplay between race and class and race in Britain between the anti what became known as, as the anti-apartheid uh, movement and black movements here. Uh, in Britain as well. So that's what I'm attempting to do uh, in this book. Not only, though, does it just look at the 1970s and 80s, but it actually looks at black communities from the end of the 19th century, and it draws a clear line and parallel across that uh, space of 50 years, and it shows and demonstrates the links that always existed between black communities in Britain and South Africans. Actually, there was a tradition for a very long time of Caribbeans, before they came here, actually going to South Africa, settling in South Africa, in Cape Town. And I had this amazing experience where the first time I went to South Africa, 
and in particular, I was in an area known as Belleville. Does anybody know Belleville? Belleville, which is known part of the colored area, um, and I went to an Afrikaans-speaking church, and the announcement was made that somebody was here from Britain. So first of all, of course, they thought I was white for my name. And then also they said that someone, you know, this person from Britain had Caribbean uh, heritage. And after the service, which, of course, I didn't understand because I don't speak uh, Afrikaans fluently, after the service, this woman came up to me, and she was so excited because her great-great-grandfather was a Jamaican, and he had traveled as a seaman from Jamaica to Cape Town. And um, she started to tell me stories. And, you know, she was asking me these places, do I know this place and that place in Jamaica? Unfortunately, I didn't because my family didn't come from Jamaica. So, um, yes. Uh, so, you know, that was a very, that was a visible, uh, for me, link between West Indians and South Africans. And if you're interested in that, you should look at the work of Alan Copley in particular. He's an emeritus professor now at the University um, of the West Indies. And he talks about that early association. And others, such as Stanley, in Stanley uh, Trapedo's uh, Marxist book, Race and Class, talks about the travel of Garveyite ideas um, from the Caribbean into South Africa and how strong Garveyite uh, ideas were in South Africa at the time and helped to propel the nationalism in South Africa at the time. So there are very strong links, um, even from you know the late 19th century into the 20th century. Another really important person to remember also is Henry Sylvester Williams. Anybody heard of him? No, not a lot of people have. You'll see a picture of him. But he was actually one of the founders of the Pan-Africanist movement. A lot of people usually think of W.E.B. Du Bois, the African-American, I'm just trying to turn it off, um, when they think of Pan-Africanism. But Pan-Africanism and the ideas came from Henry Sylvester Williams, who was a Trinidadian. He was a lawyer, came here, trained to be a lawyer, went to South Africa to practice uh, in the late 1900s. Not surprisingly, was kicked out. This was way before apartheid, but obviously segregation was in place. And he was one, again, shows you that West Indian linkage there um, with South Africa. And even when Pan-Africanist movement got up and running, um, and there was a series of different conferences, South Africans, particularly in 1945, came over from South Africa, despite the travel uh, bans and the attempts of the government at the time to stop them from traveling, they still came here and they were able to meet with other Pan-Africanists in Manchester in 1945. If you're interested in that, you need to look at Marika Sherwood's book and Hakeem Adi's book on the Pan-Africanist conference. So there was a lot of things going on. There's a lot to excavate when we think about, you know, the stirrings of, we would say the anti-apartheid movement, but even before I would say the awareness of what was happening in South Africa amongst black communities here. So who were these people who were in Britain? Well, we know that, you know, West Indians, uh, Caribbeans, whatever you want to call us, did not come here in 1948 with the Windrush. We know that, obviously, uh, people of African descent came here with the Romans. Who knows that? Does everybody know that? I think we all realize that now. There's archaeological evidence. Particularly, large numbers came uh, under the reign of Elizabeth I. I think everybody knows that. Peter Fry's book will tell you about that. And, of course, Elizabeth I was so concerned. She said that we should be kicked out. There were too many people here. And you see a lot of those sort of arguments being sort of generated then that we know very much now. We don't want those people here. They're going to take jobs from our people here. There's too many people here. So we know that there's a very long black presence in Britain. If any of you have seen David Olasoga's uh, documentary recently, who saw that? Black and British, right? Okay, a few. book is here. That tells you all about that history. But when we're here, at least in the 1940s, we have a very solid black middle class who are over here, as per usual, for studies of for reasons to study as doctors, lawyers, etc. And here's a, a group here from the 1930s um, who were here. Also, I don't know if any of you might recognize these people working for the BBC. This person here, Sandra, you should know. Sorry, I hate to put you on the spot. <laughs> BBC woman, what an excuse. Una Marston. Una Marston. Has anybody heard of Una Marston? And what about, are there any cricketers? No? Two, 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 yeah. Sorry? Yes, Sir Leary Constantine and others. So 
there was this blood presence here, even before 1948. We can see it from these images. And actually, one of the oldest black political associations was founded uh, in the 1930s under another chap who came here to study from Grenada for medicine, Dr. Harold Moody. And he set up the League of Colored Peoples. So a little bit later, when we just go and have a look at some of the documents, you'll see some correspondence between the League, LCP, let me just call them that, League of Colored Peoples, and the representative of His Majesty, uh, Prince of Wales of the day, inviting him to their meetings, also asking whether they can send him their magazine known as The Keys, which he gratefully received, but he demurred when he came to attend the meetings because you'll see in the files that some of his officials said that some of the men that belonged to the LCP were very wild men, that were too political, couldn't be trusted. Perhaps that was the view, and therefore you know that he had to be shielded from any type of controversy. But this slide shows you that the League of Coloured Peoples included quite a plethora of um, Caribbean islanders and South um, South American islanders um, as well, the Guyanese, we've got somebody there from Barbados, Trinidad, even from West Africa, Ghana, known as the Gold Coast, etc. Um, and then there might be some names that you recognize there, CLR James and Kenyatta and the others. More pictures, because people aren't used to seeing these types of images um, of these individuals. So I spoke about Henry Sylvester Williams, here he is, there's Una there, there is Dr. Harold uh, Moody, W. E. Du Bois. These really, if you like, were the black intellectuals and the black elites of the day. If you're really interested in, in reading about that in the 1920s and 30s, you need to look at uh, Mark Matera's book, M-A-T-E-R-A, um, -E uh, Black Londoners. Very good. And then in the middle, you also see Una participating with others, um, writers of the time, because she was a writer, a broadcaster, a poet, etc., does anybody recognize anyone there? Yes, excellent. Thank you. And that's your lot, is it? Yes. So we've got also some Indian writers and intellectuals and others as well. So you can see very much, I mean, very at the center, uh, if you like, of the literary class of the day. Does anybody know this woman? Her legacy, you would have been, yes. Were you at Carnival this year? No, I didn't think I saw you. So Claudia Jones, Claudia Jones, Claudia Jones was a communist intellectual, was in the States, was over here. And then in 1958, when we had those terrible riots or attacks, I would argue, against black communities, in particular Notting Hill, she came up with the idea that we would have a festival, not the way how it's become now, but we'd have a festival to celebrate Caribbean arts um, as well. But while all this was happening, there were clouds in the background represented by this man in the middle. Do you know who he is? Sir... Good old Oswald Mosley. Yes. So things weren't all sweetness and light. Two other really important, powerful individuals who had a lot to say about South Africa and were very much involved in the very beginnings and the origins of the anti-apartheid movement is this man here. He's Lord Somebody of Hampstead. Lord Pitt of Hampstead. David Pitt again came over here from Grenada, I think it was, to be a doctor but he was very, very involved in other things. And I'm just going to read an extract in a minute. This person here, one of our towering figures, intellectuals here, that, um, you know, I think a lot of what he did was uh, under-reported, under etc., underappreciated. Does anybody know who he is? C.L.R. James. Yes, well done. Where's my lollipops? Right, C.L.R. James, who lived a phenomenally long life. I think he was 96 or 97 when he died. Um, he was here for um, a very long time. So, Lord Pitt... Let's think about Lord Pitt. Let me just read you a short extract. In 1986, nearly 30 years after the formation of the anti-apartheid movement, Lord Pitt of Hampstead made a statement to his fellow peers during the House of Lords debate on South Africa at that time, 1986. Do you know what was happening in South Africa at that time? Yes, there were lots of things happening in Soweto, Yes. But it was really the crux of the ferment, yes, you're quite right, in the African townships. So South Africa was on the news every day, um, all the days, you know, throughout, on the hour. And actually, I think it was the first instance that many argued that we had this sort of 24-hour reporting was the beginnings of that, because it was always something happening and it was reported and it was always on our screen. So this is what David Pitt had to say. He said in the House of Lords, My lords, I must begin by pointing out 
that the anti-apartheid movement started in the basement beneath my surgery in my student days, South Africa and the southern states of America were the two areas which occasioned the greater concern as they were regarded as the areas which showed the evil of racial segregation and racial oppression at its worst. From the 1960s, Pitt had spearheaded campaigns for racial equality in Britain and later anti-racist politics. His memoirs reveal a sense of the mood of optimism at the time. His premises functioned as the nerve center of anti-colonial politics in Britain during the 1950s and early 60s and emerged as the cradle of the anti-apartheid movement. Then it goes on. So that man in Oxford, no disrespect, didn't know what he was talking about, did he? Because there it shows you quite clearly at least one man he was not only very much involved, but where he lived and practiced became the very cradle of the movement at that time. Just some other pictures here of a black middle class from the 30s and 40s. We've got Amy Ashford Garvey there, the second wife of, of Garvey, and others. We've got women who were part of the war efforts, etc. So there was a very established uh, black middle class here, students, intellectuals, etc., but it was really from 1948 that the presence of blacks became characterized as perhaps pathological and problematic. So this came from Pathé News. Is everybody familiar with Pathé News? And the way in which it was framed was that we've got a problem. Sorry, it was the Jamaicans. It wasn't the Bayesians. It wasn't the St. Lucians or the Guyanese. It was the Jamaicans. Our Jamaican problem started then at that point. So we know that even though you know, apartheid was introduced in the 19... 19- in 1948, straight away in many countries, including in Britain, there was this sense amongst those who were here, black communities as well as other groups, uh, white leftist groups in particular, central, center and left to the right, who'd been very involved in the anti-colonial struggle. They decided to come together, particularly after Chief Lutulu called for a boycott in South Africa. They came together and formed the Boycott uh, Committee And forefront of this boycott committee was a council of African organizations where Pitt and all his other activists were very much involved in that. And it was the boycott uh, movement that transitioned particularly, so it was formed in 1959, then something catastrophic happened in 1960, which was a real spur to the anti-apartheid movement that brought the name change to the the boycott movement, which was the anti-apartheid movement. What happened in 1960? Can anybody remember? Sharpeville had an amazing knock-on effect uh, in terms of that. I should also say that there were quite a lot of exiles that had been fleeing throughout the 1950s, mostly white, a few Indians, but mostly white South Africans who were communists, etc., who started to come into Britain. So what that did actually was to change the nature of the boycott movement and the anti-apartheid movement, which is very small, you know, sort of little black groups getting together. But now you had an influx, I hate that word, but um, now you had many people coming in from South Africa um, who wanted to get involved and wanted to solve the problems back home. So that's where you get the transition coupled with what happened in, in Sharpsville. So the anti-apartheid movement as we know it is born at that time. And what you get is just a change of the nature of the movement quite small, to strategize, you know, saying, look, let's take this into, onto the national, um, into a national uh, campaign and organization to not only appeal to ordinary people, but who we need to appeal to is the, are the guys who are running the shop, the MPs, leaders of uh, multinationals and companies, so you get a real change. And not only that, those former black elites that I was showing you, they were here in Britain at the time for a purpose, mostly to study and to train to be good leaders. So what did they do? Started to go back home. So as they went, they were in a way superseded by uh, the South Africans who were coming in, white South Africans who were coming in. So 20, 30 years maybe down the line, when people think about the anti-apartheid movement, they would think mostly of whites leading the movement rather than blacks leading the movement. Because even though we started to have, as I explained before, black migration into Britain from 1948 onwards up until 
when was the first Commonwealth Immigration Act to stop people coming in? Because there were too many of us. 1961, I think, and then on and on, when dear Margaret Thatcher, you know, rolled in many more laws. But that group of people now coming in, as they came into Britain, they were more interested to a certain degree in bedding down, settling in Britain, getting jobs, etc., and dealing with the problems that started to emerge. If you're interested in that, you really need to look at this book. It's so excellent. It only came out last month, called Roots and Culture by Professor Eddie Chambers, Cultural Politics of the Making of Black Britain, where he talks about that emergence of that group um, of people. But there are always activists within black, new forming black communities in Britain from um, the 1950s and 60s. There are always activists who were very, very interested in what was going on in um, South Africa. And they were part of, you know, the anti-apartheid activities here. Notice they didn't say movement, part of anti-apartheid activities here. They might not have been in the front line, they might not have been part of the movement per se, but they were still very much involved in anti-apartheid activity through their own organizations. And we know that really the movement became known for galvanizing really large sections of the population, never seen before since... The anti-slavery movement. The anti-slavery movement was a fantastic example of all different people, peoples across the nation coming together to do away with that particular evil of that age. And the anti-apartheid movement became very similar to that as well. But if, as I said, you focus on the narratives bringing up since the end of that time, you would think that, you know, black faces weren't there. Why would you think that? Don't know. Because there was a lot going on in Black Britain then from the 1950s up until. This is just a short chronology of all the different things that were happening. I've mentioned the Notting Hill riots. 1968 was a big year for members of the black community in Britain. Dear old Enoch Powell and what he had to say, rivers of blood speech, which is, of course, deeply ironic because, you know, as Minister of Health, Enoch Powell was in the Caribbean recruiting people like my mother and other people to come to Britain as nurses, some professional doctors, etc. So, but then maybe his policy was a little bit too successful and he had a change of heart by 1968. But that had a massive impact in terms of communities, black communities in Birmingham, London, Bristol, Liverpool, elsewhere. And when you read those biographical accounts, they will tell you what 1968, what happened to them. I think especially of uh, Mike Phillips's, Trevor Phillips's brother, he's a journalist, literary guy, etc., novelist, and he talks about 1968 and how dangerous it was for him at that time to go out on the streets as a young man because you had the Teddy Boys, yeah, you had the Teddy Boys, uh, mods of the 1970s, I think, who would go, what is it, they would call it nigger baiting, nigger hunting, they would just go after you if you were black, beat you up on the streets, etc., you had to run uh, for your life. That's what it was like. So can you see, therefore, it doesn't take a, a brain surgeon really to start drawing up parallels between how things were here and how, as they look to see how things were in South Africa as well, there were uh, definitely parallels going on there. 1970s, especially places like London, total nightmare for black communities because of all the different attacks and uh, different metropolitan police campaigns, such as, it's just left my mind now, swamp something where they would go into communities and just arrest them, beat them up. Um, if you were very lucky, you might die somehow. Of course, we know some of the infamous cases, uh, Sheree Gross and others, um, where they would just go into people's households and say that they're looking for their son or their daughter or they're looking for drugs or whatever. Also, we've got the second generation coming up. So 1948, those young people have had children who are now coming to uh, maturity in the 1970s. And ES, ESN, educationally subnormal schools where a lot of children were streamed into these classes because they were deemed to be not quite up to par. And Bernard Cord, that's an excellent book now, seminal book, How the West Indian Child is Made Educationally Subnormal. And you can draw a line from there right up to what's happening in the schools now as well. So a lot was really happening in terms of Black Britain. But one major thing, well, two major things that had an impact on Black Britain here at the time, also that increased anti-apartheid awareness and a whole sense of consciousness to, to stand in solidarity was what happened in 1976 and 1977 in South Africa. 
So, you know, in 1976, we had, anybody remember? Sorry, that's very crude, but school children. Yes, Soweto, school children, remember? 1976, school children gunned down in the streets for protesting against Afrikaans, the introduction of Afrikaans into their schools, so African uh, school children in Soweto and elsewhere. And you have that amazing Nozuma picture of Hector Peterson dead, being carried by another boy who runs along the road with him and the sister next to him. If you think that's far, far away and, you know, people don't really think about that, you need to go to Brixton and look at the sculpture, the very powerful sculpture in Brixton of that. So you had that. What that showed people was that the nature of the government in South Africa was such that they weren't only, of course, attacking adults in the townships, but they were prepared to attack children and kill children on the streets. So black communities here who had their children who were being stopped and searched, known as the sus laws, under the sus laws, and had their children who were being also brutalized on the streets, not a big jump of the imagination. Also in 1977, very important year. Can anybody remember South African who died in 1977? Steve Biko. So Steve Biko's death, had a massive impact, again, on communities here. White and black, it has to be said. And um, Wendy Woods and Donald Woods very powerfully have written about their relationship with Steve Biko. And coming over here, Donald and Wendy had to flee. White South Africans, liberals, had to flee. Donald was very close to Steve. And he was one of the ones that really made the injustice of Steve's death a matter not to be forgotten, at least in... Yes, I know the one that you mean, yes, which is charts the story of their life and as they fled and came here as well. So, but Steve Biko was a real hero amongst young people here in Britain. So people, especially like Benjamin Zephaniah, Linton Quizzy Johnson and others, saw Steve Biko as a latter-day, if you like, Martin Luther King because he wrote that seminal text, I Write What I Like, where he talks very much like Franz Fanon about being, you know, a black person, black skin, white masks, etc. So these were key, key moments in Black Britain. Another very key and very important moment is during the 1970s, there were a series of bombings and attacks against black families in southeast London. So you had the Sunderland uh, Road bombings, you had the growth of the National Front at the time, at that time, I don't think we need to say more. Also in 1977, we had the Lewisham, the Battle for Lewisham. Anybody heard about that? Anybody know that there was a Battle of Lewisham? Right, okay. Quite, quite serious when um, far-right groups, as they used to do in the 1930s under Mosley and others, 1930s they would walk through the East End to provoke the Jews. And recently last year we had that commemoration and, and there's so much hidden history there. One thing that people often forget, it was not only, you know, the fascists against the Jews, but also the Somali community who came out with the Jews to fight against um, the fascists then. And similarly, in 1977, when the far righters were walking through the community again, the whole people of Lewisham, black, white church groups, you name it, all came out and said, it's not going to happen on my, um, on my streets, the battle of Lewisham at that time, 1977. Then you get to 1981. Well, 1981 was a fantastic year, wasn't it? If you're a member of the royal family, although I don't know if you would see that as quite a happy year then, but it was the year of the royal marriage. Was it 81, wasn't it? It was a big thing. And while this was being celebrated, sadly, there was a fire in New Cross where there were 13 young people who died. One died afterwards, 14, and Plug, plug, plug. There's a great exhibition at Goldsmiths University of London, free exhibition, where you can see the photography of, I think she's a professor, Ron Ware, who, well, as women, we don't like to be identified by the, the lives of her men, but um, she's a wife of Professor, Stuart, of, um, uh, professor Paul Gilroy. Um, but her photography from that moment in time will be there, and it's free. Go along, make sure you look at it. But, uh, you know, 14 young people died in a fire, in a house fire, it was a party, etc. Except the community didn't see it quite like that. They thought possibly it was an arson attack because there'd been a whole spate of arson attacks in Lewisham and southeast London at that time. So they were a bit suspicious about that and nothing was said. So the chant, 13 dead, nothing said, or 14 dead, nothing said. Why was that? No letter from the Queen, no letter from, you know, Mrs. Thatcher, no recognition that this had happened. Following week, party in Dublin somewhere, lots of young people died. Guess what? 
letter from the Queen, letter from the Prime Minister, some inquiry, etc. Another point, the black community said, had enough. We're going to have a National Day of Action. We're going to go out on the streets and we're going to march all the way from New Cross to Downing Street. While they were marching along, and I'm going to show you a quick uh, clip now, they went through Fleet Street. Oh, Fleet Street, the bastion of impartiality. But imagine their surprise as they were walking through Fleet Street and, and they were being called niggers and missiles were being thrown at them. Shouldn't really be surprised because, of course, in the 1970s, in terms of coverage of black communities in the Sun, Daily Mirror, etc., where they talked about mugging and black youth and this and that, shouldn't be surprised that they didn't get a warm welcome. So maybe this would be a good time to just look at a quick clip. What this demonstrates is what was happening in South Africa was being mirrored really here in our soil as well in different places. Blu-ray? Right, I'll just show you now. This is a 13-minute original film of the very time as they marched. And Ron Ware's photographs were taken from this march. You get the point. Um, so that's taken by um, Burning an Illusion, which is a film that's produced by one of our black directors here known as Melanie Shabazz. And at the back of this film, Burning an Illusion, is the film short, Blood are going to run. Blood is going to run down the streets, just as um, you know, Powell said, perhaps. But you can see the real impact there upon the community, very painful impact of losing uh, young people. And Lee Jasper, who I interviewed, said this. Obviously, the struggles that young black people were going through in the UK in the early 1980s resonated with the struggles that were going on in South African townships. One began to see pictures of black young people in tremendous struggles with South African police services. It resonated with our own experience of policing in largely poor black working class areas of Liverpool, Manchester, Handsworth and Brixton. It seemed to have a universal metaphor for the black experience, and it was one that viscerally affected lots of black people across the country. So there was a lot going on. This is just really uh, an overview. And of course, at the end of that, in particular the rebellions of the 1983-1984, there was the Scarman report, who... Really, Lord Scarman was tasked with the object to look and examine this relationship between black communities and the police in particular. And as it says that he found that, you know, there was unquestionable evidence after many, many months and talking to many different peoples um, of disproportionate and indiscriminative use of the stop and search powers by the police against uh, black people. And what came out of that was the formation of the Police uh, Complaints Commission or the Police and Criminal Evidence Act in 1984, which uh, formed the Police Complaints Authority in 1985. And these are the sorts of scenes then that one started to see on the streets. And I think we are familiar with this as well. Black and white can live together in harmony. That's just showing you some of the pictures. But then also, there were these types of shots as well. And I use these photographs in the book quite a bit. So it's the work of Van Lee Burke, very well-known photographer. Van Lee Burke from Birmingham. His collection is in Birmingham Central Library. And basically, since he's been here with his family, from the 1950s, I think he came over as an eight-year-old from Jamaica, he has chronicled all of the major happenings in the black community and white community from that time onwards, also abroad in South Africa and elsewhere. But this shows us here the direct link, West Indians. To us, Africa is home. Africa is home. So they, they're on the streets in the 1970s, quite clearly identifying with Africa and uh, Africans, and if you think, well, that's a bit of a stretch, you know. Again, this is taken Hansworth, Birmingham, from Van Lee Burke's um, collection, and you can see there quite clearly clear connections made um, to what's going on. Interesting. Victory to PAC, not the ANC. A gun talks. Forward, the armed struggle. Death to Smith. Which Smith is that? Ian Smith. And Vorster. Which Vorster is that? Right. Who was Ian and who was John? Thank you. I'm glad one person is away. Yes, death to them both. Liberation now for the black masses, masses, etc., etc., etc. Quite interesting. I love this image. I mean, he's got such an eye anyway, Manly Burke. But you've got, well, what have you got? Yes, the Union Jack, the contrast, 
the Union Jack, Berry Imperialism in the Fire of Black Unity. And um, actually, Eddie Chambers, I mean, you really should get the book, he's so excellent, but he talks about that. He talks about the early generation of West Indians, so-called West Indians, and he talks about those names as well, who came here, who saw themselves as very, very British, and then being alienated little, a little, and then their consciousness changing towards um, black nationalism, pan-Africanism, Africa, etc. as well. And uh, yeah, you need to read about how that happened um, too. If you want a little bit of a light read and have a little bit of a chuckle, has anybody heard of uh, Zapiro? Jonathan Shapiro, South African uh, satirist and cartoonist. Excellent, excellent. Try and get his work. I mean, it's just full of really hilarious of cartoons there, taking the mick of everybody. So much so that Zuma has been trying to get rid of him for a very long time. Um, so that's high praise, I think. Yes, yeah, so obviously these are the types of scenes that one saw as well. Interestingly, even after the murder of um, Stephen Lawrence, in 1999, the McPherson report, which is another really Scarman report, said that all of the suggestions that has been uh, given in the Scarman report had been totally ignored. So the problems have just continued and rumbled on until, well, 2011, which we still see um, as well. But I think the interesting thing is, is that then these actions were against members of the black community, but now it's widened quite a bit when we've seen all the various scandals, haven't we, with the Guildford Four and this and that. We, we know that these um, bastions are not beyond redemption, let's just say, um, as well, in how they behave. So, okay, what was happening here? Well, anti-apartheid activities were characterised by these types of things, and I think this is what we've become very familiar with. All the boycotts, uh, sports boycotts in particular, standing in front of South Africa House, 24-hour picket. Was that anti-apartheid movement? 24-hour picket in front of the embassy? No, it wasn't. It became synonymous with the anti-apartheid movement, but actually it was the city anti-apartheid movement. So these were members in the anti-apartheid movement that had been kicked out for being too left-wing. But that has become very much uh, synonymous with anti-apartheid movement action. So what I'm saying is that there's a lot of history here to excavate. Not only what black communities were doing, Asian communities were doing, but even those who were in the anti-apartheid movement, you know, uh, white leftists, etc., who were kicked out, There's a whole kaleidoscope here of different voices that one can look at and examine and look at those histories, and it's all down there, mostly. If you want to um, look at that, you need to come to the National Archives, plug there. Um, Definitely, you need to look at the government documents, and also to go to Rhodes House, where um, that is really the centre in this country of the anti-apartheid movement. What you will see here, we've got some documents at the back that we will uh, shift to in, can, can we say 10 minutes? Yeah, 10 minutes. What you'll see here is very interesting documents where there's conversations going on between, for instance, Edward Heath and uh, prime ministers in Canada. I had to smile when I saw Trudeau, considering his son is now (laughs) prime minister. Uh, Nixon as well. A very interesting exchange there with uh, Richard Nixon about South Africa. Also, the way in which, um, I'm trying to remember what I put out now, but the way in which also the Metropolitan Police were talking about um, black communities uh, here as well, etc. But I'll flag that up when we come to that um, as well. Okay, what about uh, black activism as well? So I said that maybe black membership of the anti-apartheid movement was particularly high, and it wasn't. However, there were lots of other organizations, political organizations here on the ground. The Black and Ethnic Minority Committee, well, that was a community that sat within the anti-apartheid movement because the anti-apartheid movement was really a conglomerate of many different types of groups coming together. So you had teachers against apartheid, apartheid, Jews against apartheid. The Black and Ethnic Minority Committee was founded, churches against apartheid, students against apartheid. So that actually sat within within the anti-apartheid movement because the anti-apartheid movement realized that black community members were not being pulled into the organization. So so they should be perhaps a special interest group. And they knew that black communities were, as they described, natural, natural allies, really. Why were they not coming in? Well, they weren't coming in because they saw the anti-apartheid movement by the 1980s as really a white middle-class organization. Some of the very radical ones that belong to the All-African Revolutionary Party, which I think, you know, there's a clue there, thought that 
the whole anti-apartheid struggle had been hijacked in Britain and that they should be the leaders rather than the anti-apartheid movement, which was, you know, national, very national by then. You had the Afro-Caribbean self-help groups coming out of places like Handsworth uh, in Birmingham as well. The Black Londoners radio program run by Alex Pascal for about 14 years, where he would invite in particular South African artists, singers, poets, etc., onto his BBC program. You know, he was threatened repeatedly, look, you know, we're meant to be impartial, can't be political. You can listen to some of those tapes um, in the British Library now. They've been held there or talk to Alex. He'll have you talking for hours and hours, but he has a phenomenal memory of what happened um, as well. And there's just the independent action of individuals. Many people, when you start talking to them, they'll tell you, yeah, we didn't buy this, we didn't buy that, etc., etc. But this is evidence here of all the different groups that there were and peoples that were involved. West Indian Standing Conference, I used a lot of their archives as well as the National Archive documents, also in my book. So the West Indian Standing Conference was formed again in the late 1950s, very conservative group of black British, can you believe it? It's not Miss Nueva. Black British millionaires, establishment figures who keep very quiet, uh, etc. But uh, they were very, very politically involved. They were prepared to work with the anti-apartheid movement, unlike, for instance, BASA, Black Action for the Liberation of South Africa. And they would change the name of South Africa to Anzania. Has anybody heard that term? Anzania. So they were saying that they were returning. Anzania was a proper name uh, for South Africa as well. The argument didn't really hold that much. Black Action for the Liberation of uh, South Africa, you know, were not keen fans of the anti-apartheid movement. Now, as you just come to the end, it'd be quite interesting just to hear from um, some of the picketers. So, for instance, this comes from uh, the West Indian Standing Conference. In 1976, when there was a picket outside the South African embassy, there was Mrs. Singh with a little placard. Mrs. Singh was a South African that had come over here to settle, and she was walking up and down, and she said this quote, I live in England because in this country I'm able to live in dignity, because that's what apartheid stripped from people, their dignity. I can stand here with a placard and discuss these things with you, knowing that these officers, and there were policemen standing around, you know, protecting them, knowing that these officers will not shoot me like the police did to the children in Soweto. Remember what happened in 1976. So she was quite proud, Mrs. Singh, to declare that. Except one of the police officers said, bloody right, if I was a policeman in South Africa, I would have done the same thing. I really mean it, what I say. I would do the same thing to any of you lot. Not very impartial now, is he? So, despite the fact that the PC is a police officer, said his friend, he has a right to his own opinion. Hence, he's not in the wrong to say what he did at the time and place a question. So I go into this verbatim in my book and I discuss that and I talk about the way in which the West Indian Standing Conference then wrote to the Home Secretary at the time and said that, you know, this was appalling what happened. As a matter of fact, they had to curtail the demonstration because the young people there became quite angry and there could have been a conflagration, a confrontation. Can you believe this? Outside the South African Embassy as well. So um, that just, you know, goes through a little bit of what was said can anybody remember Roy Jenkins at the time? And it's quite interesting because Roy Jenkins at one point um, addressed police convention and said, you know, there really should be more black members of black uh, policemen in your membership body. And when you read um, the House of Commons account of this, as he's telling his MPs, he says that, you know, he got boos and jeers from the policemen in the audience because they were not happy with this idea that, you know, there would be more um, black people. Possibly he was promoting that. So what were the black press saying? So by time, at least in the mid-1980s, especially 1984, what was important about 1984? What happened? A very important visitor from South Africa came. So can anybody remember the visit of dear Pete Botha, Prime Minister of South Africa? I mean, this was another galvanizing moment. Everybody came out the streets. And Mrs. Thatcher, implacable. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have. That. But to the very end, no, it's very important for him to come. It's very important for us to, you know, obviously keep the dialogue open. And uh, actually, it's quite interesting because uh, Robin Wenwick, he brought out um, his book last year where he talks about, and I think this is very good, you know, he talks about the role of uh, Mrs. Thatcher. And his book is called, you'll see it when you get to the last, oh, The End of Apartheid, where he rewrites history a bit, no, where he um, reassesses Mrs. Thatcher's role. But a key argument 
for her anyway, was that South Africa should not be isolated. We should keep, you know, the dialogue open. And therefore, we shouldn't push ahead with sanctions, etc. I know you know this. So, um, but it's quite interesting. The black press, when he was invited, both was invited, said, look, black people have fought in the last war under the British flag. When Great Britain fought to destroy racism in the form of Nazism, which was based upon the concept of the so-called superior race. Apartheid South Africa is similar in its practical intention of the degradation of man. Yes, not only that, the architects of um, apartheid, many of them trained in Nazi Germany uh, in the 1920s and 30s, and Bertha himself was almost locked up um, for being um, sympathetic to the Germans just before the outbreak of war, because South Africa was the British ally, the British allies just, um, but really they had great sympathy with the Germans. So it's quite interesting, um, the parallel um, he makes there. It delimits black fellow human beings who are capable of unlimited achievement to the role of sub-animal status without rights in their inherent country. Therefore, Great Britain must destroy it and not accommodate it. Britain must practice what it preaches or it shall lose its customary position of credibility. And then same sort of thing about contributions that have been made, about equal opportunity um, being denied. And I think quite crucial from the Caribbean times, look, Mrs. Thatcher represents the leadership of what is now a multiracial society, which despite many faults constitutes Great Britain, including over 3 million people of Afro-Caribbean and Asian origin. The Prime Minister of South Africa represents a minority regime of apartheid that denies equality, self-respect, etc., etc. So I think you get um, a sense of what was going on. So much so that black councillors and many more came out and protested, wrote letters. There was a great big open letter written and signed by everybody under the sun, all to no avail, because, of course, you know, he came and he was um, entertained at checkers, etc., etc. But it's quite interesting because uh, Robin Renwick, who I didn't even say who he was, sorry, he was, um, was he high commissioner? But he was, at the time, a very prominent member of um, Mrs. Thatcher's government. Before then, he was part of the Rhodesian agreement there, sorting things out uh, from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, etc. And then he was, you know, high commissioner and went down to South Africa. And he was very involved in during the release of Nelson Mandela, etc. So he's, re- he's thinking about that history and he's writing about it. And he talks about really what was going on when Mrs. Thatcher met um, both are behind the scenes. And his argument is, is that actually she did the right thing um, to have that conversation. He talks about what they, you know, what they discussed at that time. So in the face of bitter protests, um, that was going on. So there were t- still tensions, however, um, in terms of what the anti-party movement was doing and stood for. It engaged in all these um, um, activities, tried to galvanize the population, bring them together for different boycotts and um, special days, etc. but also was writing all the time to different government ministers. And also what it was doing was it was really exposing what was happening because it wasn't just, you know, what was happening in South Africa. But remember, there were South African secret operatives here and British policemen were going and British uh, military men were going to South Africa and training the police, training the army. There was collaboration between the scientists. There was so much going on and the anti-apartheid movement was exposing all of this stuff Um, and sending many reports to different government ministries. Not only that, the anti-party movement were representing the UN and really pushing for, you know, major sanctions against South Africa and for disinvestment. I'm sure you've heard about the disinvestment campaign. So while all this was happening, of course, there were other black groups who were, let's just say, I would say, quite envious of the prominent role that the anti-party movement was making, and they were therefore coming up with these um, criticisms at that time. podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.